0: Hello, and welcome to magic is real. I'm your host Shannon. And today I have with me, Christine Clawley. I'm going to read Christine's bio to you. Christine is an NDE experiencer, a counselor and a life coach who has worked in a variety of capacities after overcoming the life-threatening necrotizing fasciitis at age 24. She embarked on a journey of healing and self-understanding through exploring various holistic techniques, including a mindfulness practice, meditation, yoga, self-hypnosis, and indigenous healing modalities. Prior to contracting this illness, she received many dreams and messages that foreshadowed her illness. While spending nearly a month in a medically induced coma, she had many dreams that mirrored what was happening to her on a physical, emotional, and spiritual level. Upon awakening from the coma, she experienced increased intuition, empathy, and an increased frequency of lucid and precognitive dreams. These experiences have led her to research topics related to near-death experiences, consciousness, non-ordinary reality, synchronicity, dreaming, and shamanism, all of my favorite topics. So I'm so thrilled to have you here, Christine. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Awesome. Wonderful to be here, and I'm so impressed you pronounced my name correctly, and you even identify that horrible illness. Uh, I'm kind of a medical well. nerd.
0: I, I'm i really fascinated by medical stuff. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of, I already knew, I already knew what that was. And I am so sorry that you had to go through it, but I'm so grateful that you're here and healthy.
1: Yes, thank you. And actually, when someone thinks about necrotizing fasciitis or the flesh eating bacteria, I'm sure a lot of, you know, frightening, scary images come to mind, yeah. but At this point in my life, I really look back to that experience and I have a lot of gratitude and I even celebrate um, the day I should have died as my second birthday, kind of acknowledging that this near death experience led to a complete rebirth of who I was in many ways.
0: That is so yeah. beautiful. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, and I want to thank you too. We just, we were supposed to, ha- I want to bring this up because it's leading to something else, but uh, we were supposed to have our our Zoom today at a certain time and I just dropped the ball and forgot about it. And so you reached out to me and I thanked you for how gracious you were about uh, forgiving me <laughs> for being so absent-minded. And, and I was telling you that I just think that um, one of the gifts of people coming back from NDEs is that they really have just a deeper understanding of why we're here and they don't sweat the small stuff as much and they are in the flow of things and I've learned to be much more like that where now if something happens that is not preferable or you know happens something happens that's that's unforeseen I really just say it's divine timing it's divine timing and I knew that you had something wise to say about that so I wanted to hand you the mic
1: Yes, thank yes. you so much. And I really think this is such an important um, issue and topic in our culture is uh, the nature of time, how we relate to time. And I actually wrote my master's thesis on this very topic because, from my personal experience, and I think um, a lot of people out there who are, you know, working the nine to five. Um We are tied to this rigid clock time. And so often uh, the intuitive time, the timing of our bodies doesn't sync up with that artificial clock time. And especially when it comes to situations of, you know, grief, loss, illness, um, I look at those as kind of wake-up calls that maybe we've gone too far into the direction of sacrificing these things to to conform with the pyramidal time structure that we have in this society where people who are um, more wealthy are time rich, therefore they can plan their future, um, influence the future of others. Whereas those who are time poor or struggling with poverty, they may be working three or four jobs, um, they they don't have the time to care for their children properly, their bodies, we know about the health impact, mental health impact. So this is something um, I'm really passionate about is, is, and, and struggle with still in my own life, is how do we um, come to recognize how we've enslaved ourselves to this, um, time system and monetary system in a lot of ways. There's that saying, time is money. And um, and I think that's really tragic and unfortunate that we've reduced this amazing gift of life. And, and I love the name of your podcast, you know, Magic is Real, because when you've had an NDE experience, you know, you come back, or at least I came back to this reality. And I was so grateful for just the small things, um which I can kind of get into a little later. But this is an incredible planet. There's so much beauty. there is so much to be enjoyed, and there's so much connection. But so often it's, you know, that um, perceived choice of, well, I have to survive, so I have to, you know, sacrifice this, this, and this. And so I really think it's a revolutionary act you know, not only in our personal, but sometimes professional lives to uh, kind of go against that time system in some ways, to offer grace to one another. That, okay, if you're a minute or two late, you know, that's not necessarily showing respect. Um, There's a quote I just want to bring up from my thesis here. And this is for, um, let's see, so this is a book called, uh, I, I believe it's the, um, the Silent Language by Edward T. Hall. And in studying Native American culture, he found that uh, the Pueblo Indians, for example, who live in the Southwest, have a sense of time which is in complete variance with the clock-bound habits of ordinary Medi- American citizens. For the Pueblos, events begin when the time is ripe and no sooner. So for different cultures, there's this way of really looking at reciprocity, relationship, right timing, intention, emotional state. And, you know, that's very hard to reconcile with this clock time, which is very, you know, rigid, rush from one thing to another. And in our society, it's about cramming as much as you can into a 24-hour period. And with, you know, the internet and technology, that busyness becomes exponentially harder to resist. So I'll just pause.
0: So good, Christine. Thank you for sharing that. Man, having lived in LA for most of my life, the stress of all of that and the I have an audition, I have to be there. If I'm late, they're gonna yell at me. It's like, everything is so tense. And now I'm in Arizona like you and we don't even do daylight savings time, which is beautiful. Uh, and i probably, and I wonder if it has something to do with that sort of Native American element where we're like, we're not doing that, man. That's, yes, yeah, so that's beautiful. Thank you for that awesome insight. That's a great way to start the podcast. I would love to know about you and your background, wherever you wanna start, just as it pertains to your spiritual journey.
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, I, I do feel lucky. Um, I just want to give my parents credit. They really encouraged me to explore different spiritualities, philosophy, you know, from the Bible to um, Eastern religion to yoga meditation. Um, so I did have this kind of exposure as a young person. But like many young people who have, you know, 12 years of public schooling and then, you know, college, et cetera. I really um, became, how should I say, I I identified as a type A. And I was really uh, trying to survive in this world, you know, um, conform. And I, looking back, I have such, compassion for myself because I was sacrificing a lot of who I was on a core level to, you know, make money. And so at the time of my illness, I'll just start with that. I had recently graduated from college uh, with a degree in philosophy and psychology, which I loved. I felt very supported in that environment. And then when I went into the working world again, that was that was a hardship to go from this environment of intellectual freedom and having a voice to, you know, being another employee. And um, I was doing sales and advertising, and that just wasn't very fulfilling to me. Um, I didn't feel very well respected um, in some of my jobs, and I was really struggling with depression. I was definitely drinking more than I should have. And I would say, about you know, six months to maybe even a year leading up to this experience, um, I had these very intense dreams where I you know, was being strangled by this kind of dark haired indigenous looking woman. I don't want to make any, you know assumptions about what that necessarily is because symbolically it could be many different things but she was choking me. And that's what I was doing in my daily life. I was choking off my voice, my creative expression. Um, I had a lot of you know, repressed anger. And I do believe after working in the mental health world for so long that a big part of depression is anger turned inward or suppressed. Um, when people feel so hopeless and that there's nothing they can do to change their situation, it's often acted out towards oneself. And then I also had a dream um, that there was a cyst in my throat, I was try- or a mass, and I was trying to remove it. And that is where the infection started. And then in addition to that, I, I've always loved, you know, writing, journaling, doing poetry. And even a couple months ago, I was looking back on my journals, and the imagery was just unbelievably similar to the experience I went through. And so I'm really um, fascinated and interested in this idea that there's a part of our psyche that exists outside of time and that these feelings, yes, I was in a state of depression, but there was, I think, some element of my consciousness knowing that this event maybe was going to happen. And so, you know, I had this... um, I'll go into the illness and trigger warning for anyone out there. I'll try not to go go into too great a detail. Um, But leading up to the illness, um, I, you know, got what I thought was flu at the time. Um, People around me had had strep and this was only two weeks. I didn't have health insurance because I just started a new job. Of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Great time. And so I went to the ER And, you know, I knew something was seriously wrong and that I I could possibly die, but I couldn't, they didn't believe me, you know, at the hospital, like so many people who go there seeking help, unfortunately. And I understand ERs are overwhelmed and they don't have all the resources, but I went home after that and I thought, well, I'm going to, I'm going to die. And so I called my parents to pick me up, take me home to their house and for the next couple of days, I was just in this state of kind of in and out of consciousness and they thought, well, you've just been to the hospital, you know, maybe you'll get better, but I was not getting better. It was very difficult to swallow, to eat. And um, there was a moment where all of a sudden this red lifted rash formed around my neck and very quickly in a matter of seconds, it, it just spread all the way down to my chest and, in. and then my heart just started pounding out of my chest and I knew this, this was it. So I reached out to my parents. They drove me to the ER. I don't remember making it there, um, but shout out to Memorial Hospital, Colorado Springs. I just wanna cry. The doctors and nurses just really fought to save my life. I'm so grateful to them And, um, so when they, they realized I was in septic shock, I had a collapsed lung and they just thought, you know, it was pneumonia. They'll patch up my lung, do a tracheotomy. But when they went in to do the tracheotomy, they saw this was much more serious of an infection. And so I only had, um, about a one to 10% chance of surviving because with this, illness, uh, they often have to amputate because it's just so aggressive. It spreads so quickly, but this is in my throat, throat. chest and abdomen. And so, um, I was in a medically induced coma for about three and a half weeks. Um, and during that time I was from my experience living in these other realities, other, other worlds. Um, And I won't go too in-depth to this, Um, I think I recently saw a great movie, I just want to plug in here as well, called uh, Strawberry Mansion. It's kind of an independent small film, uh, you know, production, but I really appreciated the way they showed the overlapping nature of, you know, dreams, near-death experiences, and potentially these other realities Um, I thought they did an incredible job. And so for myself, um, this was what some might call a distressing NDE. I had dreams which reflected what was happening to me on a physical and emotional level. So my brain interpreted these operations where they were opening me up, closing me up as being tortured by doctors. And so that was very scary. Um, I was, you know, frightened. It was not that pleasant, obviously, and then there was, so that was kind of the first set of dreams, and then it shifted to being in this kind of in-between realm where not a whole lot was happening. It was like I was resting and floating on this very, you know, warm, um, beautiful water in this underground cave with these red lanterns all around me and the music, I can still hear this music and, and I still feel this eerie feeling of just knowing, you know, this isn't like normal reality, you know, there, there's something, something else going on here, but it wasn't too frightening. Um, But then that dream later transitioned to another dream where it felt like I lived out an entire life and, I was this um, Asian woman in my late 40s or 50s. And I was um, trapped on this ship, this wooden ship out in the ocean with all these other women. And I was kind of like the manager of these women. And I had to bring them onto the ship. And we were human trafficking victims. And there was just this sense of hopelessness um you know depression isolation we were not allowed to look at one another talk to one another and this was my life and I felt there was no hope of ever escaping or getting off this ship and so this lasted for you know what just felt like an eternity and then there was this moment where I saw this (laughs) beautiful woman that I felt to be my sister Um, and we locked eyes and there was just this compassion and this shared knowing and understanding of one another's pain. And it was like in that moment, the only way I can describe it, it's like a spell was broken and the whole tone of the dream began to change and there was hope and we were planning to help and liberate one another and you know, shortly after that experience, I, I remember waking up. And so, you know, um, that was an incredibly impactful experience. I also remember upon waking, just feeling, I I believe I had another experience where I surrendered so much to that, um, fight, you know, that was going on for my life. There was this moment where I do remember, um, Knowing that there is no death and feeling just this unbelievable sense of of love. Um, there was no pain, there was just complete um acceptance and and understanding that everything that I had gone through, you know, is necessary. And so it was an incredible experience. And then waking up, I was just very confused you know, coming back to this reality and, you know, realizing like, oh my gosh, that was just a dream. I'm back in this body. Um, and the recovery was, was hard. I had to, you know, I was down to 80 some pounds. I was intubated still, even when I woke up and it took me quite some time to get off the, um, the respirator because my lungs were so weak. And so that experience, you know, was amazing and profound. And I still consider that a life-changing experience. Those feel like real memories to me and very much have impacted the work that I do, um, you know, with survivors of assault, um, and, you know, trying to empower, you know, women and and change this paradigm where um, Well, I'll get into that a little later. I'll come back to the experience though. The healing experience was another incredible lesson in that I had to learn to just try my best and then let go of expectations because the progress was so slow. And I didn't know if I would ever be able to breathe again. I couldn't talk. So I didn't know if I'd be able to talk again. Um, I still suffer from paralyzed vocal cord um I didn't know if I'd be able to walk you know if I'd ever be able to work so I would just put in the effort you know do what I could and then let go but every moment felt so important you know the the love I had for my family and it was just like this rebirth and in a you know symbolic and also kind of a literal way because I had to work hard to get all these things I had taken for granted back and I also went through the experience, um, I think this is important to talk about as a woman in our culture, you know, losing my hair, having all these scars and as a young woman, you know, most of us are identified with our parents and, and that was, you know, this, this kind of grieving process of accepting, you know, what happened to me, my new body, my new identity, not being able to relate to my peers having you know PTSD-like symptoms come up and flashbacks. But there was something else that was happening and that was some kind of residual effect from that experience, which fits in line with a lot of the near-death experiences. And so even though I didn't clinically die in this case, I was very close to death. Um, I can identify with near death experiencers uh, because I was in this other space, this other realm for so long, and then because of the after effects, which were very, very confusing to me and challenging, because when I think someone has a traumatic experience, um, and I wanna be careful in saying this because I don't wanna glorify traumatic experiences but I also want to talk about the, the possible benefit of some of these traumatic experiences. And for myself, um, the boundary between self and other wasn't as great. I was very intuitive, extremely empathic. So, you know, I would go to the grocery store and I could just feel you know, what other people were going through and would get these impressions. And that's, that can be very overwhelming for a person who's not used to that. Um, And then in addition to that, uh, a big part of my journey has been about lucid dreaming and precognitive dreaming. And so I, this really challenged my reality because, you know, I'm a, Kind of a traditional western person thinking i have free will and you know i'm in control of my destiny and then i dream something sometimes mundane sometimes very big and then it happens you know almost exactly as i dreamt it and i still have these experiences um, i document them and i collect them uh, and i affirm these experiences in my clients because in the mental health field, we often, we have traditionally pathologized these kinds of experiences. And this goes along with colonialism. You know, a lot of indigenous um, cultures all over this planet valued dreams. They valued intuition, visions, synchronicities as um, powerful signs, uh, information that can be life-saving and very impactful. And with colonialism, and I would say, you know, the Inquisition, certain religious uh, movements, this knowledge was very much suppressed, or um, demonized, or labeled as crazy. So language and labels are extremely powerful. And this this was kind of a difficult part of my journey was coming to grips with these experiences. Um, you know, questioning, okay, is this, is this real? Am I, you know, do I have some kind of mental health disorder? But again, if these experiences are lining up, you know, if there's documentation, and maybe even other witnesses kind of validating these experiences, why should we exclude these from scientific research, and that kind of thing. So, and I'm not the only one. There's many other people I can cite. There's many um really powerful uh thinkers and scientists who are writing books, who are running experiments. And I believe we are in a renaissance right now where this, this information could be potentially shifting, you know, this paradigm. Yeah.
0: I agree. The fact that I'm never at a loss for to find guests for this podcast after two years. There are th- thousands upon thousands of people some of them don't even talk about it for cultural reasons too sometimes they're different um you notice a lot of people are like kind of similar and that are speaking out about it and then there are people like african-american people that have said to me well i had one but i didn't it's not really accepted in my culture as often so you may you know notice that there's a disparity of uh, of representation but it really sometimes comes down to well we don't our culture is more religious and we don't talk about this because I might be shunned from my religious community or whatever. And yeah, it's really important. And I'm finding more and more people are less surprised when I say, yeah, I have a podcast about near death experiences and I'm a medium. They go, wow, cool. It's not like, what are you talking about? You are crazy. So I am so grateful you got your voice back. I know you would have written no matter what, but I'm so glad I, as someone who's also suffered from numerous vocal disorders, um, And I know that it's, it may not have been as severe an experience, but it was traumatic for me too, especially I'm a voice actor and um, our voice, my voice is like super important. Your voice is super important and you have a message to share and yes, we can write it, but there's something so scary about having that, that uh, box of expression taken where you can't talk and you can't share and you can't. it's it's very difficult. So I would love to know, so you've got, so you've, I know that it can be difficult to come back into reality. And as you just described some of the ways in which it can be difficult um, assimilating back into this dense world, you taught, I know that you've done a lot of research on, on these topics. Um, What are some of the, I mean, this could be anything really, just what are some of the most profound things that you've like, what's something really profound that you've learned about the nature of existence and our souls and what we're doing here?
1: (laughs) Oh, just. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Just. Oh, hold on. Let me, yeah. Sit with that a minute. Yeah. I think it's the whole thing. It's all these, all these different experiences, you know, and I never get used to it. Um, it's always, it always brings up this sense of magic and wonder and awe. And I think there's really this kind of tension and struggle. And maybe it's supposed to be this way. Maybe that's why we're living, you know, in these times. But I think there's this tension between this kind of scientific materialism worldview, which views, you know, matter is dead, time is linear, um, uh, let's see, causes as A influences B, and even the scientific method, while it's a wonderful thing, you're isolating variables um, to study the relationship, but you're excluding other variables. And with quantum theories and some of these other, um, theories out there, and a lot of ancient wisdom. There's this other worldview where we are incredibly powerful beings. The universe is alive, is interactive. We're constantly influencing it, sending information out, receiving. There's, uh, who knows, maybe we're multidimensional. Maybe there's other realities, other states of consciousness. And I think it's so important to to question, you know, to question this other reality that again, strips uh, people, nature, uh, animals, beings, even objects down to just objects to be used. And I think what we're needing right now is a different belief system, worldview, be reality. Um, and I'm very, you know, very much influenced by, you know, Emmanuel uh, Kant and, and Frederick Nietzsche. And Nietzsche is all about um, this post-morality where uh, it's, it's this reevaluation of our values. You know, we're coming out of this system that um, kind of strips the earth of meaning and value. And again, the earth is is a resource to be used. Humans are resources to be used. Um, and it's all about maximizing profit. And it's very, it's a very dehumanizing worldview. And now we're throwing AI technology into the mix. And what kind of impact is that going to have with this worldview, with the consolidation of power? And this other reality, this other worldview, um, I think is a very positive kind of a- antidote to what has come before. And it's not maybe necessarily that new. I mean, there's ancient roots of of this kind of worldview, this kind of thinking. And, you know, I personally see the effects, I see the effects of, you know, these beliefs, this conditioning and my clients. And um, I think when we, the other powerful part of near-death experiences is when we begin to really lean into the fear of death, um, meditate on, consider our own mortality. You know, what? what do we want to do with this gift of life? How do we want to spend our time again, it makes, it puts things into perspective of how we want to live our life. And is life just about accumulating things and, you know, climbing up the social ladder or this or that, or, you know, is it about something deeper, something else? And I think, you know, what's going on, yeah, politically, socially, I've heard people say, oh, this is the age of narcissism. And and certainly there is a big part of that but especially in the U.S. um, you know it seems as though we're really getting this feedback of yes we're a culture that that just worships youth superficiality money power and that just is kind of boring I guess and doesn't there's no soul in that there's no um, depth. And so as a culture, I think we are going through kind of a big transformation where maybe we're, we're rediscovering our roots. You know, we're having, um, we're, we're seeing the results and the consequences of our decisions. You know, we're seeing that from an environmental standpoint, socially, economically. Um, and as as painful as that can be facing all these existential challenges ai included there's there's gifts in that there's gifts in that especially if we can be present with the pain if we can use that as a catalyst for spiritual growth um and to make meaning of these experiences
0: that was a beautiful answer Worth the three-second wait. <laughs> no, thank thank you, you so much. Uh, I also am just whipping out a sort of a random topic that I'd love to speak with you about. I'm also a psychic medium, and I say also because we're all mediums. We're all we're all energy. We're all souls. We all have the ability to connect with the other realms. People who come back from near-death experience or uh, experiences tend to have heightened sixth senses, if you will, uh, heightened senses, as you said, where you can start to see images or you can start to feel other people's energy more uh, intensely. And uh, sort of along those lines, I just had a random word come to mind, synchronicity. And I'd love to know, I'd love you to just riff on syn- the the concept of synchronicity.
1: Ah, thank you. <laughs> yes. And so, um, so Jung coined this term synchronicity, which is this a-causal principle connecting our inner world with the outer world. So it's as if our the inner content of our mind is kind of manfe- manifested or reflected externally. Um, now, one of my uh, favorite authors, Eric Wargo, he, he challenges this um, description of synchronicity, and he talks about precognition, Um, and other ways of looking at synchronicity, which I think are very valid and interesting. But the important thing for me, when it comes to synchronicity, precognition, whatever you call it, is that this is, um, again, kind of an antidote to that other worldview. This is a way of making meaning. And um, it can, so Jung used this in therapy with his patients. He observed it in his own life. And I've had, you know, really profound, fascinating synchronicities. And you can use any word to, you want to kind of dis- explain or capture these experiences. Um, but sometimes they are life-saving. Sometimes they connect with loved ones who are going through um, something very, you know, difficult. So that, that's one of the most common things. Um, experiences that I come across in some of my research is that a family member is in an accident or suffering or close to death, and that other person knows. Um, Another uh, incident that I'll just share, um, this was one of the most profound life-saving synchronicities, and I'm still so grateful for this experience. Um, I was visiting a friend in California. at a bookstore, the, this book just seemed to be calling to me, even though I was like, no, don't spend more money, you know, because I have a book problem, book addiction. <laughs> but I grab this book. I'm flying back home to Denver. And I'm reading, reading, reading. I get to this chapter. And something intuitively inside me just says, okay, just sit with what you had, had just read. And what I had just read was that having um, the symptoms of burning lungs can mean that you're having a heart attack which I've never read before and the author was talking about how his wife had saved his life by reading this on the back of a cereal box and so um, I just read this my father was picking me up from the airport and he said my my lungs are burning my lungs are burning it's the pollution in Denver you know get me out of here I need you to drive and I looked over and it was almost like I could see his spirit kind of leaving his body. And I just thought, no, I need to take you to the hospital. And he's going, no, 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 just take me, you know, back to the Springs where, yeah, um, it's cleaner air. So I go against his orders and I drive him to the hospital and they have to operate on him right there. He, his heart, um, his uh, one of his, um, Arteries was ninety nine percent clogged, and it was very very life threatening. I don't know if we would have made it, you know, to Colorado Springs. So that's one case of how how do you explain that through our normal concept of linear time? I mean, just the right life saving information came to me at the right moment and allowed me, you know, to use this. So this can be very practical, and I'm still on the fence about whether or not we can change um change the future or change what's supposed to happen and this is a really frustrating area to study um uh, uh, another amazing um speaker and author elizabeth crone um who co-wrote changed in a flash with jeffrey kripal She has these um, repeated precognitive experiences of major disasters, such as plane crashes, tsunamis. She gets very specific information, but she feels like, well, gosh, what's the point of these experiences if I can't change them? And there's another um, uh, researcher I wanna throw out there, Julia Mossbridge, and she's also doing a lot of work studying how maybe we can use precognition to help, you know, stop disasters or things like that. But Eric, coming back to Eric Wargo's theory, his idea is that maybe there's time loops and maybe we can send information back through time and into the future. Um, so I really think considering other models and really, you know, beginning to see the practical application of this. And you, as a psychic and a medium, I mean, it's an incredibly powerful way of knowing it's often instantaneous it can be very accurate um and you don't have to go through all of the left brain you know I've got to look this up I've got to prove you know research and all these sources prove it yes that can be helpful in some ways and yes sometimes we can make mistakes with our intuition or things don't always turn out um the way but but how I just think why not consider this a valid way of knowing and mm-hmm. so, again, my hope is that we're um, going to be going through a paradigm shift where these are considered valid experiences and not pathologized.
0: I appreciate that, too. And, you know, the thing is that even like the CIA has been using remote viewing and I've remote viewed before, which was the first time it ever happened. And I realized, oh, my God, this is real. We have so many abilities beyond what we believe that we do or we know that we do. and. When we were growing up, it was all fantasy. It was all like movies and mm-hmm. um, science fiction. And yet, these people knew something. I mean, George Lucas, I understand, was a near-death experiencer.
1: Absolutely. Good yes. versus evil,
0: the forces, the whole thing. There's so much. Uh, I'm getting chills for some reason about mm-hmm. that. But um, I think that I think it's, it kind of feels like spirits. Like yes, yes. Um, that these things we were told were fantasy, but in fact, they were based in reality. And now we're starting to see that. I mean, the fact that I be, I became a medium later in life and I did it almost to prove to myself it was real. And once I did started doing it, I learned that this is real. This is very real. There is a way that I can communicate with spirits, people who are out of their bodies, and they are giving me very accurate information. And it seems so uh, fantastical, but we call it paranormal or supernatural it's not it's normal and natural
1: that's it 100% agree with you it's the most normal natural thing it's our birthright as human beings and for some reason um you know this has been discouraged this has been you know fear has been used to suppress I think these innate gifts that we have absolutely yeah Yeah. I think that's so true and
0: what Off the top of your head, what do you want people to know?
1: Okay, yes. (laughs) I've been really thinking about this more and more and more. Um, And just seeing the power and healing in my life and in others' lives, just the power of connection. Yeah, You know, that we, when we move out of a society where you know, kind of like rats, we view each other as competition. You know, I have to step on this person to get to this next thing, or I need to go faster to beat this person. That is a very um, lonely, isolating, not fun way to live life. And, And that when we connect, when we open up, when we share our experiences, our vulnerability with Safe people, um, just magical things happen. And so I, I've just, you know, I know we're living in this age where a lot of us are isolated on our computers much of the time. But, you know, the, the positive side of the internet is there's this incredible um, ability to connect. Um, and that it's so powerful for people to share their experiences and especially share their experiences um, of things that have been stigmatized uh, silenced such as you know abuse sexual abuse exploitation um and just how powerful it is for people to come together and support one another I can't, I, I love watching documentaries and I've watched um, quite a few recently on different cults or religious organizations um, where these survivors you know come together share you know share their experiences and just the healing that comes from that so no matter what a person has gone through i think finding other people who they can relate to who understand them, them on some level can be just incredibly healing and transformative and Again, that is kind of the antidote to this old way of looking and, and being this rigid hierarchy and system of exploitation. When people talk, when people share information and work together, I mean, so much can be done and and we can live, we can transform society and culture into something. Maybe I sound like an idealist, probably so, but We can we can change. We can heal. We can find new ways of living.
0: Thank you for that. This is and this is why podcasting, I think, is so important and so why people love podcasts. It's it's reaching a lot of people and talk about synchronicity. Right before we got on this call, one of my very best friends lost her baby at five days old, and she is in a grief uh, a writing a writing group with other uh, bereaved bereaved people, but also like people who've lost their children. I think she's in two. And she was just saying, I said, how is that feeling for you? And she said, it's been the most comforting, lovely thing. We've become like a family. And I told her as a 12-stepper, I understand when you enter a group of people that have understand it, no matter your circumstances are different, but you have a shared pain. The bottom line is it. It's the hurt and the pain and the understanding of what that feels like, even if you have different experiences. She said some of them have lost a child, some have lost um, a a husband, some of them have lost a, a, a sibling. But she said at the end of the day, I've lost some friends through this, but I've also gained a lot more. And we were just talking about how important community is to support you when you are just in immeasurable amounts of pain and how even the 12 step model which i love is that you get into a room full of complete strangers and within the first the first part is all it's all sharing i mean that's kind of what you do and we all go around in a circle and share the most intimate details and pain by the end of that meeting you all are hugging each other you're you're like i know you it's it's just what, and I wish that we could all be more vulnerable with one another like that all the time. I feel like I am. And sometimes people are a little like taken aback. I kind of am that person anyway, but I just think it's so important to be vulnerable and to to support one another. And we're all going through this experience together, no matter what your circumstances, life is hard. It's varying degrees of hard. Um, And we all have these different stories, but all of us know grief. Yes. It's just, we've all just experienced it differently and we need that support. So I think it's beautiful, especially how scary this world can be and it is at this moment,
1: especially. But we're all on the same planet together. So, yes. you know, yeah, if we can recognize that. I was thinking of, um, I think it was Edgar Mitchell and some other astronauts speaking about William Shatner too, I think, being outside of earth you know, looking down from space and just having this incredibly spiritual experience, you know, realizing how precious this planet is, you know, that we're just, I mean, it's incredible when you think about just the miraculous nature of this planet of life, that it exists at all. Um, And it's an opportunity to respect life rather than taking it for granted, um, you know, and, and greed, I think greed is a big kind of disease of our time, you know, just um, and, and we're seeing the consequences. So maybe, you know, there's uh, that whole Gaia theory maybe recognizing, you know, there's an intelligence to this planet and maybe we can't really perceive it, um, you know, or I, I'm I'm not sure really quite what I'm trying to say, but um i think that could be really powerful to again kind of shift our perspective and realize these resources aren't going to last forever that we do impact nature each other animal life and that there is this intricate ecosystem and that there's this incredible um, interdependency and if we can come back to recognizing that maybe we can heal some of the things that are out of balance Yeah, that's
0: so beautiful. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm excited to talk to you more in our real lives. Um, And we're in that. So I want to know all the documentaries you love. And I just thank you so much for showing up for this podcast. I know this has been one of my favorite interviews. You just have there's so many good nuggets. And I I really appreciate just how eloquent you are and, and the insights that you shared today. I know that they are going to really uh, resonate with people. So I just thank you for showing up with your time and energy.
1: Oh, thank you. Wow. That's so heartfelt. And I do look forward to connecting with you too. What, what city are you in? You
0: I'm in Prescott, Arizona. Oh, beautiful.
1: That's yes. such a gorgeous area. It is such a gorgeous area. Yes.
0: So there's me magic is. here. There's magic in, uh, there's Arizona is a very magical place. And it a very is. spiritual place. Yes.
1: Very magical place. I'm in love with this state. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you, Christine, so much for joining me. Thank you.